I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 89 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Today we're joined by historian and author Stephen Proctor as he shares his unique experience playing the old Tom Morris Trail in Scotland. In just under a month, Proctor played 18 courses that old Tom Morris either designed or improved. A once-in-a-lifetime experience that he wants to share with all of us. Stephen shares his journey and insights into the mind and designs of old Tom Morris. Before we begin our show today, I would like to thank all of you who have participated and followed the Newsom Varsity Golf Auction on Twitter. I had hoped to raise two to $3,000 for these high school golfers, and in two days, we raised just about $30,000. Thank you for bidding, thank you for your donations, and thank you for following the action. That's enough for me. Let's join my interview with Stephen Proctor. Oh, and before we begin, my apologies for the horrific attempt at a Scottish accent during this podcast. Enjoy. Welcome back to Talking Golf History, Stephen. So great to be back, Connor. Always enjoy the show and love being on it. Well, you're joining us shortly after your month-long golf sabbatical, tracing the design footsteps of old Tom Morris. But before we dive into that journey, let's talk a little bit about your new book, The Long and Golden Afternoon. Now, everywhere I seem to look, people are reading it and they're raving about it on Twitter and Facebook. What's been your experience since it's been released? Oh, it's been really super positive. You know, I did have um, a little bit of trepidation about it in the sense of, you know, this is the story of a whole age of golf. Yeah, it's it's a huge undertaking. Yeah, much bigger story than the story of one man. So I had two worries about it. The first one being, would golfers relate to it as well as they related to a hero tale, like the tale of young Tommy, which I think of as very right across the heart of the plate, much easier for the average person to connect to as a story. Whereas a story that has multiple leading characters spread out over multiple decades uh, and goes across so many different topics. Number one, I thought, you know, I hope I'm good enough to write a story of that nature. That's always my first worry is failure. Uh, like any writer, I think. Uh, and secondly, would people relate to it as well as they did to the book about young Tom? And so I would say so far, uh, it seems 100% that everyone enjoys it at maybe, I don't know if they enjoy it more or the same as young Tommy, but they clearly get the story. I think they're clearly enjoying it. I, I just got, you know, one of my best friends on Twitter is Matthew Wharton. Very intelligent 
and sensitive and wonderful man. That's the head head greenkeeper at the Carolina Golf Club. And he texted me a section from the book this morning uh, about John Ball. And of course, you know, one of that that struck right to my heart because one of the things I really want for this book is to have golfers remember the great players that existed in that age prior to the war, which, you know, had a striking number of what you would call all-time performances, things, feats that were not matched. You know, obviously only one other person besides John Ball and Harold Hilton has ever won an Open Championship as an amateur. That was Bobby Jones. So those feats have lasted pretty much for all time. I think it will be there are very few records that I think can't be beaten. You know, almost anything will be beaten, and eventually Tiger will be superseded too, if history is any measure. But the record of John Ball winning eight eight times that's insane. Bob Jones won one. <laughs> Bob you know? Jones won one. That's what's amazing. And in the modern age, Michael Bonilak, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, I normally get it wrong the first time with names from uh, the United Kingdom. But Michael Bonilak won five. And, uh, and that was over a very long period of time as well. And, and an, an absolutely extraordinary achievement, but still four away from passing John Ball. Staggering. So Staggering. It's, it's, it's uh, that. So it was, you know, to get the text about John Ball was meaningful to me. Because it's his story, above all, that I think uh, people should know more about. I also, you know, have gotten some very favorable response to stories in there about Freddie Tate. And Freddie Tate is another person who, well, of course, you know, he's... Revered in St. Andrews, sure, but... Because of everything that he's about is what has drawn me into all this. You know, his love for St. Andrews, his love for match play... Uh, you know, the swashbuckling personality, like unlike anything that had been seen since Tommy. There was so much about Freddie that was the pure Scottish golfer that in my heart I would aspire to be is a, a Scottish golfer above all things. And uh, so Freddie was particularly attractive, and I was glad to get people writing to me about, uh, you know, how how they were attracted to Freddie and how, how tragic they found, you know, the, the, his – his story in the Boer War to be in this and that. So is that, yes, is that one of the great know, rewards, Stephen? Is that one of the great rewards having people reach out to you after reading oh a certain God, section? Yes, it's, or just to even, you know, post a picture of themselves reading it in some exotic locale. There's been a few of those. And I'm, uh, you know, palm trees, the coast of Spain or somewhere like that. And to think that, you know, hey, this little story that I told uh, is going to be read all over the world and probably remembered sometime after I've left this place. So, uh, yeah, no, that's quite a satisfying feeling. And, you know, I've had an, uh, you know, I will have every so often, uh, certain of my key fans, uh, will write to me or uh, ask me if I, if I would sign the book, if they mailed it to my house. So I have a fairly, uh, you know, steady stream of books that come to my house, uh, and that I sign and return via media mail because media mail is so inexpensive that, uh, that you can afford to do that. So it's all been great fun, and I'm just really pleased. Uh, you know, obviously the written-down reviews that the book has gotten uh, have, have, been, have been beyond anybody's, you know, hope uh, of having. The one from Golf Shake was really, really strong, and the Rogers review I mean, you know, in the public. <laughs> I mean, being called 
the next Bernard Darwin is not a it's not a bad insult or anything. No, no. So like I mean, you know, obviously I'm over the moon happy about how it's gone. And mostly I'm just hoping that it accomplishes what I set out to do, which is to help people understand the heroes of this age and the really brilliant and transformative people who weren't even golfers. Uh, well, or at least not, you know, you famous know, main right, interest sure. was not golf. Yeah. Like Bernard Darwin, like Horace Hutchinson, like John Lowe, like Harry Colt, like a lot of the big movers, how, how all these minds were at work during this entire generation to make this game become what you know today. Exactly. And it's the it's connectivity become- between what was and what is. I think your book does a brilliant job of bringing those together. You know, how did we get to, you know, it, it covers an era that, you know, goes from when players were hitting the ball less than 200 yards to players hitting the ball 250 yards. That's a complete game changer in technology. And, yes, you know, much more so than we've seen in our own life. Yeah. And ex- the expansion of the game, right? Out of this you know, niche Scottish sport to this worldwide phenomenon with some of the characters that you cover. It's really phenomenal. You know, when you think about it, when the Open Championship began in 1860, golf wasn't even played everywhere in Scotland. Okay? It was really, you know, there were some very key golf centers, and it was played a lot of places. But there were places where golf was not played any kind of regular way, in Scotland even. And so to go from that, so from the date that the Open Championship begins, and really a little before that to the introduction of the gutty ball, honestly, that's when it all begins. In a 50-year period, solely in a 50-year period, by 1898, Varden has become so famous that people are th- thinking about bringing him to America. The game has uh, spread that far and that wide. Golf Illustrated's circulation was worldwide by the turn of the century. And uh, so it's pretty amazing that level of growth in that period of time and, you know, I think what our own life has shown us with Tiger, with Nicholas, with ho- of those who are old enough to have seen uh, seen a Hogan or, or Palmer anyway, is that heroic performance on the field is what moves the game forward. That's how it's always happened in history. The things begin when people start to do things on the golf course that will be remembered or that people want to be remembered forever. There's a reason they put up a statue to Tommy in the cemetery at St. Andrews is that the men who lived in his age didn't want other ages to forget this incredible thing that had happened in their lifetime. And I'm sure that's why we have statues to Arnold Palmer and Nicholas in various places and stuff. So people don't want the generations that come after them to forget golf. Tragically, that's mostly been true. And so that's, that's the whole thing for me is to try to, to make that story come back alive so that, People can appreciate, my God, those must have been years, and they must have been golfers then. Well, it's a great transition here, because now we're going to talk into a monument that people can play, right? Yes. Uh, the old Tom Morris, what is it, the old Tom Morris Trail or the Tom yes, Morris Trail? the old Tom Morris Trail. So we're going from like an author's journey, right, to the golfer's journey. Can you share how this journey went in following the footsteps of old Tom Morris? How did it come about? Well, first off, it's such a funny, it's a thing about golf, right? Which is that during the years that I was working on the Tommy book, when I was first doing all the reading and the research and the things that were necessary to even think about writing such a story, uh, I was living in San Francisco and working at the San Francisco Chronicle. 
the CEO of the Chronicle, a man named Frank Vega, uh, was a huge customer of Bonnie Wee Golf. Like so many CEOs, he was a big-time golfer. And, also, and explain to the folks who don't know Bonnie Wee Golf is... Bonnie Wee Golf is a luxury touring company in Scotland that takes uh, people on specially created tours of golf in Scotland or Ireland or England. And they principally work in Scotland and Ireland because that's where most golfers seem to want to go. Mr. Vega had taken any number of tours in Scotland with them, and he had become so friendly with the principal operator, uh, David Harris, that he invited David to the U.S. Open at the Olympic Club which, of course, all the key staff attended, myself included. We all got to play the Olympic Club in advance of the championship on media day and all the four fun things that go with having an open in your neighborhood. And I met David Harris there for the first time, and I think he was fascinated by the work I was doing into a young Tommy and so forth and so on. So David and I had been friends for a number of years since then. We played in Mr. Vega hosts a golf tournament in Florida annually, which I've typically played in. David has often played in it as well. Uh, It's good for business. And uh, it so happened that uh, our friendship came over the years. Two years ago, David came up with this idea that he wanted to create an old Tom Morris golf trail as a way of celebrating Tom's 200th birth. And so naturally, he conferred with me about it. And I explained to him that, well, that's not a name you can just put on a golf trail there, David. You know, uh, the St. Andrews Links Trust owns Tom's likeness and name. And you, they, you would have to have their permission in order to uh, to name anything the old Tom Morris Trail and particularly do anything like sell merchandise around it or any other thing like that. There's a lot of very specific permissions that are required. So uh, – as it happened, he didn't make it for the 200th birthday because of all of that. Uh, but I had written for him a small opener for his website just about the importance of old Tom and his work in spreading golf around the world. And so when I went to play in that tournament this spring, David popped this idea at me, which was, what if you came and played the full trail and did something for us about it, like maybe you know some online things and, and maybe write something? for us about your experience on the old Tom Morris trail. And so uh, that was, a, you know, one of those don't throw me in that briar patch type of moments. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm retired early, so I'm not a person who has a lot of excess money for golf travel anymore. In fact, I would say I have zero excess money for golf travel. But, uh, you know, David was willing to pay the expenses for the trip so long as I, uh, you know, did everything I could for him content-wise which is which is a you know more than fair trade and so that's the arrangement and uh uh, he i played 18 golf courses uh, during the month of june uh that's the number of courses on the trail for reasons that are obvious uh and the trail formerly starts in Ashkenish, out in the Outer Hebrides yeah actually Stephen, if you wouldn't mind do you have the list in front of you can you go through I mean, we'll hit upon some of those, but do you have sure. that uh, the list available? Yes, I in fact do. So I will because it's it's a staggering list. It's it's unbelievable, really, and it it was just the experience is just the greatest golf experience I have ever had or ever will have. Yeah, it, it's, it's amazing, not toppable. You know, especially even if I were to go do it again, it's the joy of the discovery is not completely recreatable. Although it would be wonderful, I'd do it every darn year if they let me. Um, but it starts at Ashkenish in the Outer Hebrides, and we can talk in a minute about why that's so perfect as a place to begin. Uh, 
but it goes from there to Royal Dornick. And then when you're, then you're up in the Highlands for a little while and down along the Murray Firth. So you go from Dornick to Tain and from Tain to Nairn and from Nairn to Murray Old Golf Club. So Nairn, Murray Old, then Cullen. So that's all along the Murray Coast, which, of course, happens also to be one of the great whiskey regions of Scotland. So there, there's that as the side trips. Uh, then you get to Cruden Bay, which Cruden Bay is, is we can talk more about, I think of as one of the, there were several that I thought were just wow, absolutely wow. Cruden Bay is one of those. Um, Montrose, the uh, classic old links of Montrose that have been there forever and ever. Then Carnoustie. And then you are in Fife for a bit after that. So you go to St. Andrews, you play the old course, you play the new course, you play Crail. And then uh, after Fife, you head over to East Lothian, which, of course, is the other great ancient epicenter of the game. Uh, you play Loughness New, home of Freddie Tate, home course of Freddie Tate that we spoke about a, a little bit ago. Muirfield, home of the uh, Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers, and obviously one of the great Great golf courses in all the world, as we just saw recently on television. North Berwick, uh, Dunbar, and then you move west again to Presswick, and you finish at Makrahanish. Uh, so a spectacular lineup of golf courses. And, you know, what's interesting about it, Connor, is that it, it really shows you the many faces of golf in Scotland. You know, you get a strong dose of real championship golf with the old course, with Muirfield, with Carnoustie, the open venues, and, and I think in that same category as Dornick, uh, you get what I would call classic municipal Scottish golf that's just good sound holes, all good sound holes, one or two spectacular holes, a nice setting, a course you could play every day like a member. Surrounded by great people who just yeah, love the game. Yeah, little clubhouse surrounded but with a yeah. whole bunch of people that have been born to the game lived with the game probably on that very same links their whole life uh, and absolutely adored. And that, a place like Tain is, is like that. Montrose is like that. Crail is a little bit maybe a notch up from that, but similar. And uh, Cullen, of course, is also like that. But Cullen is one of those wow factor landscapes too. I mean, what a plethora of like amazing golf experiences in one trip. Right, you're seeing different regions of different important regions of Scotland. You're seeing the game played, you know, in those regions. I, I just, it's got to be a fascinating trip for you. It's just, it's fascinating in every respect. One is simply the physical landscape that you take in as you, if you do the whole trail. You literally see the length and breadth of Scotland, including some of the outer islands, obviously like the Outer Hebrides where Ashness is located. Uh, and this wild variety of landscape, most of which is really spectacular. One thing about Scotland, you know, Scotland reminds me not physically, but, uh, in the wow factor sense of California in the sense of so much of the landscape is so spectacular. Uh, and you know, the other thing that's fascinating to me about Scotland is just Scotland is not, there's no suburbs in Scotland that I saw, you know, it's basically towns and countryside. And, you know, you could be in a pretty big town like St. Andrews or Glasgow or, you know, and, and if you were to drive five miles, you would then be 
in countryside that would take you two hours to get to. Oh, I mean, one of my favorite stories of Scotland, and I'm going to do it without a, a Scottish accent. It's better with a Scottish accent, but I don't want to insult the Scottish people by doing a Scottish accent, especially without any prep. But uh, I had played uh, Old Musselboro Lynx, and and it was with my dad. It was on his 65th birthday. And I, I'm sure I've told this, this story on the podcast before. And we were sitting in the clubhouse of the Old Musselboro uh, Lynx, and um, I think it was the club secretary was talking to me, and, and there were a bunch of Scots around us, and we were having a good time and drinking. And, and I said, where, where are you playing tomorrow? And I said, oh, you know, me and my dad, we're going to drive over to Presswick. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, you know, we're just going to get in the car. We're going to drive to Presswick. And, and they're like, you're going gonna, gonna, to – I'm seriously trying not to do the Scotch accent. It's really hard not to want to do it. But they're like, you're going to drive – to the other coast of Scotland. They made it sound like I was driving to California from Florida. Yeah. Like it, it just, it doesn't happen a whole lot. Yeah. And I, I just said, yeah, you know, we're going to do it. And you know, it's always, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm like checking on my phone. Like, did I misjudge this? It was my first ever trip to Scotland. I'm like, is it like 500 miles? And I think it was like 60. I mean, it was like not, a, not a far distance. It takes about two and a half hours. Yeah. It's a longer drive to, through the, the roads, the rustic roads. But I asked him and I, I don't even know. I'm going to do an accent. It's probably going to come off Irish or Scottish. I don't know what the hell it's going to come out. So I apologize ahead of time, anybody who's listening from Scotland. And uh, I said, listen, you know, I've been driving on your roads for a week. And I, and I noticed that, you know, you, you don't have anything to pull off on, right? You know, there's no like, you know, little, you know, gravel road on the side that you can pull over if you have car trouble or need directions. It's basically you have you know, two lanes and then it falls off into oblivion or a stone wall there that you're going to run into if you try to pull over. So I, so I asked one of the gentlemen, I'm like, what do you do? Like if I'm driving to Presswick, <laughs> this accent's going to be so bad, <laughs> I'm leading up to it. And uh, I go, what do you do if your car breaks down the middle road? And he goes, well, what you're going to do is you're going to get to the side of the road and you're going to walk 500 500 feet away from your car. And I go, 500 feet? That's a pretty far distance. Why are you going to do that? He goes, because a car's going to come around the corner and smash into it and he'll kill you. And I'm like, oh my God. And he's like, no, no, I'm not kidding. Get out the fuck out of your car and walk 500 feet away. That's probably was more Irish than Scottish, so I apologize. But um, no, I, and that's what it is. I mean, you know this, right? You've been on those roads. Yes, no, it can be, it, can, it was, well, like, you know, if you land in Ben Becula in the Outer Hebrides, uh, heading to Ashkenish, the entire road is a single track road and there, there are passing places, uh, <clears throat> but there are no, it's not two lane, it's one lane. And, uh, what was fascinating to me about that too, is just, it was like a, like a symphony for the people in the Island, the people that have lived there all their lives. They, they know the rhythm. They pull over at the right spot in the passing place. You pass them. There's no difficulty. There's no worries or fear. Uh, I was amazed by that, how smoothly that all went. You never the foreigners are white knuckling it the whole time. Yeah, yeah, but but we had a we had a driver that picked us up there, and uh, and he uh, a guy right out of a movie script actually that lived in the Outer Hebrides his whole life, and he was winging down these roads at uh, at a high rate of speed, just whipping into the passing places. It was amazing. It's like never never a concern. But it was yeah. So did you do anything to prepare for this trip out of the ordinary? Yeah, walk us through that. Yeah, because my biggest concern about it is, you know, I'm 65, so I am a walking golfer, but I do have the 
the, the problem of five months of the year, I can't walk uh, because it's too hot in Florida to walk in the summertime. And so um, I really wanted to, my biggest concern was to be in walking shape, to be able to walk uh, 18, as it turned out, we did, made a side trip. So 19 golf courses in 26 days, uh, some of which are, are fairly testing walks. Um, and, you know, to carry in each of those occasions uh, with, with once or twice I had caddies, but the vast majority of the time I carried. So I uh, played once he, we had agreed to this in March uh, at that uh, tournament and uh, that I would be coming in June. So for all of April and May, I walk nine holes every morning. I, uh, I have a golf course quite near my house and they'll let me play the back nine at sunrise. Uh, so I walk nine holes every day. And uh, just to try to make sure I was, uh, unfortunately, I was lucky in the sense of sometimes by mid-May in Florida, it can be way too hot to walk Oh, already. so true. Yeah. But I was lucky that the weather was pretty temperate up through the end of May. And so I literally walked nine holes uh, the last day before I jumped on a plane to go. So I was walking fit. Walking shape. You know, you can't, it's almost, you can't prepare your feet for what they're about to, you know, go under. And, and I mean by that is um, Scottish links tend to be quite hard. I mean, you really need comfortable shoes. I think that's the advice I'd give everyone going to Scotland. Well, and, and waterproof shoes. Too. And water, so, <laughs> great point. Uh, because it does, it does sprinkle a little bit now and then over in Scotland. And uh, so we, you know, I, 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 you know, it was a lot of walking. Uh, we, you know, for the last nine holes, a friend of mine was along and he had an app. He was taking pictures and he had an app in his phone that recorded the number of stories that you walked. So how many flights. Yeah. So if you walked Ashkernish, that was 51 stories. Uh, if you walked Cruden Bay, that was 58. Uh, most of the other ones we walked were in the 15 story range, which I would think of as about normal for a walk of that many miles. And you go up, you know, little inclines to the green or to the, yeah, it's just constant. So you don't notice it as bad until the end of the day. I mean, you you knew that you had taken a walk when you walked up to the ninth tee of Cruden Bay. That's for sure. That, that is a tester. So, so you, you played the, uh, old Tom Morris trail, Slightly out of the order that's played, and I, I believe you start at Makrahanish. Is that correct? Yes, I did, Connor. You know, this year was an odd year for touring companies and for golf generally in Scotland and England because uh, the COVID years, millions of tours that had been scheduled had been canceled and rolled over to future years. Well, this year was that year for almost all of those. So most touring companies, and I think Bonnie Wee Golf is no exception, had two or three times the ordinary number of tours on their hand, then they operated it under typical circumstances because of the rollover effect. And uh, that also, you know, tea times in Scotland and England sold out quite early uh, for the whole year. Uh, and so, you know, tea times were not easily obtainable, at, particularly at the old course, uh, you know, during the time of the 150th anniversary open championship you know you just can't get on the old course like any old time you want even if you're uh connected uh and um so i ended up playing the trail in a completely different order but honestly connor i think the whole beauty of the trail is that it's easily broken into sections absolutely and i would argue i mean though it's normally not played this way you're starting off on you started off on what many consider to be the most beautiful opening hole in golf at Makrahanish. And I mean, like, what better way? I was thinking when you told me you were playing Makrahanish, I was like, 
is there a better way to start? I mean, uh, John Smart's painting of Makrahanish is of the first hole for that very reason. I completely agree, Connor. And, you know, for a whole different host of reasons besides that one, you know, the first time I ever got the absolute desperate urge to go to Scotland was when I finished reading Michael Bamberger's book, To the Lynx Land. Uh, and in particular, the portions about his studies with John Stark, the teacher, uh, Free, and all the other sort of Scottish, true Scottish Lynx experiences that John Stark wants him to have with the idea that this is how you become a Scottish golfer and you, you come to understand what that means and why it matters. And uh, so that book has always had a huge uh, importance in my own journey as a golfer, as a reader of golf writing, and ultimately as a golf writer myself is, is, is that. So it was kind of fitting in a spiritual way that, you know, I had, I got to start at Makrahanish, you know, I had, I'm ashamed of myself to say that I said my fourth trip to Scotland and all those times I found one reason or another why it was not possible to get. Uh, I mean, to it's not easy to get to. Askernish is probably the hardest of the ones you played probably, but Makrahanish has to be right up there. Yeah. Makrahanish is, you know, it's just, but part of the greatness of the trail and part of the greatness of journeying around Scotland is the journey itself. And there aren't many that are better than the journey along the road into Makrahanish. So that was how I began. I got picked up at the airport in Edinburgh and uh, by David, and he and I uh, drove together down to Makrahanish. Uh, in our, we had a vehicle that he had branded with Old Tom Morris Trail. So it was fabulous. So we're driving around in our Old Tom Morris Trail SUV. His, uh, his partner, Julie, had created a special track of Scottish bands that uh that we you know Ellis, uh you know various ones that are fabulous and uh uh so i was listening to that the, the whole time we drove it was like a four and a half hour drive i think from edinburgh down to macronish uh, it was a spectacular day though windy but clear and sunny and you know the coastline along there it just reminded me of driving from san francisco to los angeles in the sense of oh my god this is you know you can't shut your you know i was you know, I knew I would be really tired because it's an overnight flight. And I was just thinking, I hope I can get enough sleep on this plane that I can stay awake for that drive in there. And I was pretty pleased that I was able to power through. And uh, then a funny thing happens. We get to Makrahanish. You know, it's uh, so we haven't even been there 24 hours. Uh, David says, go, th- go throw your luggage up in your room. I'm going to wait out here. And then we'll, we'll go and look at the golf course and go have uh, some dinner or whatever. And uh, so I go up to put my luggage in. I come back and somebody has already stopped at the truck to say, excuse me, are you here with Stephen Proctor? No, oh, wow. Old Tom Morris trail on it. And I know he's here playing the old Tom Morris trail. Are you with him? And so this guy who he's talking to you, he's talking to David. Oh, I thought <laughs> it would have been better if it was you. You'd be like, you know, he's around here somewhere. And he's, uh, this guy comes up to him and says, are you here with Stephen Proctor? And, uh, which is hysterically funny, right? So, uh, that guy shows up at my tea time the next morning with the club that he found in his uh, uncle's attic or something of that nature. I can't remember specific details, but it was fabulous. It had Charlie Hunter's name on it, the man who succeeded Tom at Presswick, and it was one of those walking stick clubs. So, you know, courses were often closed on Sunday because Presbyterians, uh, uh, you know, don't do that. And um, 
old course in particular is always closed on Sunday. But if you had your walking stick, you could be out walking on the course and it had a, a pointed end, you know, with the with the, a metal protector so that you could be w- using it as your cane. But then you could turn around and putt with it. Uh, and uh, so there were a number of varieties of that kind of club chippers and uh, and putters and so forth. So it was one of those. And it was just fascinating to see. And it was just right away. There was interaction with Twitter because that guy was a Twitter follower and of course, Robbie Wilson, another Twitter uh, stalwart, played with me at Makrahana. So it was just the most perfect start to the whole thing. And as you say, that opening hole is got you know to me right away. I felt like I learned something very significant about old Tom Morris, creator of golf holes, which was my God, this man likes drama, you know. And uh, you know it all. You know I had played some of these courses before, and it immediately brought flashes into my mind of other holes of his that I played that I felt like were incredibly equally dramatic, like the Alps at Presswick. Uh, and of course, where so much drama had unfolded in the book, obviously. And uh, so it, that, you know, it was right away, you start to get a lesson about what did old Tom, how did he work? What was, what was it that he did, you know? And, uh, so Makrahanas was just the absolute perfect opener, especially that opening shot, which I'm ashamed to admit. I was so nervous. No, no, you hit a perfect shot, right? (laughs) No, I did not hit a perfect shot. It was rather emblematic of the entire trail in some ways, because my concentration on other matters, uh, seemed to hamper the golf a little, but, uh, I played with two captains of the club, the current captain and the former captain, Darren and Steven. Steven gets up and just bombs it all the way across the ocean right in the middle of the fairway. And I'm like, holy Jesus. And not only that, he cut off a huge amount of ocean. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. This is intimidating because I am, I'm up. Yeah. I'm, if, if you, by the way, Steve, if you're giving someone a visual, would it be fair to say if you're thinking in the United States, it's like the 18th at um, Pebble Beach? Fair. Well, in one or, respect, yes, in the sense that the ocean's ever The cut, present. yeah. But you have to decide here. This is sort of like, uh, there's a, I think it's the second hole at Cyprus where there's this long row of bunker and you have to decide. So it's Yes, like that. yeah, that's right. It's stretched out in front of you. Pray to Lord that the tide is out and the beach is available as a bailout because that's where the other captain and Robbie Wilson wound up was on the beach. Uh, but you can get back on the fairway from there, assuming that the tide is not in when when you would then have to carry the entire water. But it, the, the, the whole play is on a diagonal away from you. So every inch that you go farther left is more ocean to carry. And the question is, how far am I going to try to hit it to cross this ocean? I started out with, with uh, very low ambitions in terms of how much I was planning to try and cross. And I, and I failed to beat even those. Uh, I just hit a terrible slice that had the benefit of landing on dry ground and that was about it. Uh, and, but it made it into like a par nine or whatever. Yeah, so I mean, you hit a cut, Stephen, you hit a cut, yes, I hit a cut, a wicked cut, a wicked cut by the wind. So the wind is always howling there too. And it was blowing about 30. And it, the way that course plays is that, you know, it's a, a, a fairly out and back type deal where the wind is in your face the whole way out, uh, the prevailing wind. And then when you turn for home, it's right behind you. So, Hopefully you can hang on by your fingernails on the opening nine and then, you know, maybe make up a little ground on the, on the homeward nine. So as I understand it, your opening salvo, now this isn't the, in the usual order, was Makrahanish, Presswick, Mirfield, North Barrick. 
Is that correct? Yeah, that was kind of a good start. Oh, you know, I mean, four of the greatest courses in the world right off. Yeah, for any uh, golfing soul, that's like a murder's row of great golf courses for not only like the great golf, but like golf history and open history. You know, you, you've got these bookends of, of courses that haven't hosted the open that are fantastic. And then you have two in the middle that have that have all this history. That's it's it's fantastic. It was just a wonderful way to start. And honestly, on the way from Makrahanish to Presswick, we popped over to the Isle of Aaron and played Shiskin. Oh, you uh, did. A little 12 holer. which I Yeah, Willie played. Park course, correct? You Willie know, Park I, Jr., I thought? I should know. I don't know. I should know, but I don't know. Uh, but it was a wonderful 12-hole course, and I played it with hickories. I played uh, several of the links, including Ashness, with hickory clubs uh, during the course of the uh, uh, time I was there. Some of the others I played with my modern clubs, but uh, but Shiskin was lovely. So then we wound up at Presswick. Presswick, of course, is the ultimate links in my mind. I would say it is to me what Aberdovey was to Darwin, the place you just feel like your soul wants to be is Presswick. There's so much of the history I've written about unfolds there, much more so than so at So let's Christ. dive into that a little bit. Was there anything in particular with your visit to Presswick that stood out? A historical moment, a golfing moment, something along those lines? Well, it's interesting because um, I wanted to go one more time and walk the the hole where Tommy made the three. Uh, and, you know, there's the marker stone there uh, left of the, you know, where before, you know, off beside the clubhouse where where the first tee originally was. And they are in the process of uh, restoring the 12 hole course to be opened in the fall uh, as part of this 150th anniversary celebration. You know, the open in those days was attached to the autumn meeting at Presswick. And so it was held in September or October. So uh, in, in the autumn, they will have the course back to the original 12 holes. And so some of the greens, the original green sites have been marked out. Uh, now it so happens that today's 16th green is the green to which the original first hole played. And so I got really lucky because there's so many little karmic events on this trip. The caddy that was assigned to my group is uh, named Chris McBride, who is a close personal friend of Jim Hartzell, a guy that I've done a podcast with and become good friends with, uh, who's probably done more Scottish golf than anybody I know anyway. And uh, so McBride was telling me, uh, you know, how the hole played and where it was and so forth and so on. Uh, and, uh, about an experiment that had been conducted with Zach Johnson to try to repeat the three and, uh, didn't quite work out. Uh, I mean, but if I'm not mistaken, the first hole played over the fifth and 11th green, which is now yes. the 13th. Is that correct? I'm uh, looking at know, the I'm map as I talk. A perfect expert on that. I don't have the map in front of me, but I do know it was 578 yards. It played, uh, uh over, you had to, to either go around or over the goose stub swamp. Uh, so there was a swamp there that is no longer exists. It was dried up, uh, but it was very much in play off the first tee. And so it inhibited <coughs> um, your direction and or length of your opening shot. So uh, I happened also to be um, called by an organization during the course of my trip there that was uh, doing a, a mathematical study of what are the greatest individual golf shots of all time with, with, a, with an algorithm that they had created measuring various factors. And they had uh, narrowed it down to two. One was a shot that Tiger Woods made at Hoylake uh, for Eagle, I believe. And, and the other one was, was Tommy's shot. And I mean, decided, it's not even close, is it, Stephen? <laughs> like, no, we know the answer to this one. 
so, uh, it, you know, Tommy shot was the ultimately decided at by the mathematical equation to be the greatest single shot ever made. And I had, I did an interview during the course of the trail about that. And so it, that was just a really great moment to see that hold again and to, 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 to realize, oh my gosh, you know, three is just, I mean, it's just, you, you can't wrap your mind around it. You know, uh, it's just, especially when you think about the clubs so forth and so on. So that was a really great moment, obviously, to be back in the Presswick Clubhouse and to look at the honor board and to see the replica they have of the belt and to see all of the. They have a great, you know, great little walls full of history upstairs where you have your pint and your, you know, your uh, toasty afterwards. So uh, just always a wonderful experience to be at Presswick. The Corth itself is ridiculous. Heard a great story from the caddy about Payne Stewart which uh, the tent there at Presswick Place, you know, uphill, tough, long par four into the into the prevailing wind. Seriously windy day when he's carrying for Payne Stewart. Stewart hits driver off right into the middle of the fairway, and they come up to the ball, and he says, all right, Chris, what's the, what's the club? Chris says, driver off the deck. And Stewart looks at him like you're out of your mind, takes out a three-wood and hits it and comes up short. And uh, he's then just, just giggling the whole way up the fairway, and McBride asks him, why are you giggling? And he says, well, because I haven't been short with the driver and the three wood since I was 12, you know, but uh, yeah, so it's Presswick is just a tough test of golf and uh, always a joy to play. The, the longstanding joke for, for years was that um, Presswick held the record for most hole in ones uh, of any golf course in the world. And it was because uh, the blind shot par three, they'd have four caddies on the other side and they knew they got tipped more if by the player got a horn one, so the four caddy would take the any of the balls on the green and throw it into the into the hole, and everyone would cheer on the other side like a delayed cheer, and then you know they'd get a better tip at the end of the round. By the way, I'm okay with a hole in one like that, folks. If if I'm playing a part, I can be I no dumber. I'm fine with that. You know, if all four in the group got a hole in one, good for them. Great shots. So wh- let's see here. How does Old Tom Morris Trail, how does it allow the golfer or golf historian explore the design ideas of Old Tom Morris? Like, what did you take away from, you played 18 amazing golf courses, many of which were either designed by Old Tom Morris or renovated by Old Tom Morris. You know, what's the takeaway for the golfer and the golf historian? I think a lot of things, Connor, honestly, the first thing I thought was it's just not right to think of Tom as an architect. So to use the word golf architect to describe what Tom did, I think of as starting us off intellectually on the wrong foot. I think what Tom was, was a person who had a gift for discovering holes in the natural landscape. You know, he didn't have the capacity to move dirt. I mean, he could flatten a putting surface a little bit with a barrow and a spade and replant grass, but that was about it. He wasn't moving any dunes. He wasn't nothing. He was finding holes in the natural landscape. And I think when you come to think about his work in that way, you get a better appreciation for the genius of what he's able to do, especially at a mystifying place like Ashkernish, where you're like, how does he even find this pathway through the dunes that's so brilliantly fun to play? So one thing is he had a real genius for routing. Uh, just a natural genius for figuring out how to make the golf course flow. Uh, The other thing is that his green sites are always an adventure. 
when you get to a like Ashness, every green at Ashness is a wild adventure. Most of them are two tiered. All of them are wickedly sloped. Uh, and a lot of them are perched on these little plateaus where everything runs off into oblivion. And uh, many of them you can't see from the fairway and you have no idea that that, oh, you can't hit that one inch past the hole or it'll be down in a gully so far down you're afraid to climb and hit it. Uh, yeah, so uh, so he had a, a great, he really wanted rollicking adventure on the green. That was a big thing. You come to appreciate his love of a great view. You, you realize in the places where he selects greens and the places where he selects tees to them, one commonality that you discover is they often have an incredible view of the sea or of the link spread out in front of you. So on the 11th at Ashkenaz, you look out and, you know, it's just nothing but the Atlantic Ocean spreading out behind you and the greens out in front of you. If you're standing at that first tee at Makrahanish, you have the spectacular view of the ocean. If you were to look over your left shoulder and it was a clear day, you could see Ireland, you know. And so many of his greens and tees wind up in places where you have a great view at Dornick, at Cullen, uh, all the, you know, almost every course you play, Tain, any of the little ones, any of the big ones, that that's a commonality that he loved to view and he had a knack for routing his holes and placing his tees and greens in a place that took maximum advantage of the beautiful landscape that was around him. Uh, the other thing that I mentioned first was drama. You know, Tom liked drama, and he in particular liked the drama of a shot you could either that was completely blind or partially blind. And uh, so many of the great holes on the trail uh, play to greens that you can't see. The 11th at Tain is one of the coolest holes I think I've ever seen in my life. You play off of this elevated tee down into this fairway. Now, you could probably just carry the dunes with your second because you're a long enough hitter to do that. And you wouldn't know where the green was behind it, but at least know what to hit over. And uh, I had to try to lay up a little bit short of the dunes and then pitch my third one over so I could walk to the top of the dune and see what was behind. Yeah, a lot of it is that right. So he loved that excitement of climbing up to the hill and seeing what happened to your shot at the Alps, you know, at there's a hole at Ashner's called the old Tom's pulpit. That's the 16th where you play from the fairway over a dune to a green behind it at Cullen. They're the, they have these giant rock formations called sea stacks. And one of them is uh, a par three that is behind a 50 foot tall, 60 foot tall sea stack. So you stand on this tee and you have to loft a ball up over the rock, uh, there's a little painting in the rock that tells you where you're supposed to go, and it goes through the green behind. If you don't think you can get it up high enough to get over the rock, you could slice one around the rock, and it would get pretty close to the green, but probably not on. So, you know, it, all that kind of adventure is part and parcel of what he considered to be fun golf, and I believe what golfers in that age considered to be fun golf. The other thing that you realize how great he was at is he found – whatever was the most dramatic feature that this particular landscape had. The Alps, you know, uh, at, at Presswick, for instance, that mound comes into play on multiple holes. Uh, Cullen, the sea stacks are played over, around, two. All the, the whole, a lot of the golf course is shaped to bring them into play, either physically or visually. And he would do that everywhere. Uh, you know, like if there was a burn that wound through the property, it would find its way into a lot of holes uh, because – People in his age evaluated a golf course based on the quality of its hazards, 
any review you read from the 1890s talks about the course in terms of how good are his hazards, because everybody then had an idea that the fun of golf is tempting the hazard or beat defeating the hazard, not uh, taming the hazard as we think of today. So um, those were the main takeaways for me. Uh, and I'm still, you know, thinking about it every day. I'm writing about it all the time. So I'm still very much sorting through all of the thoughts I've taken away about Tom, the creator of golf courses. I'm definitely going to write some large essay at some point about, uh, about it. The other thing that strikes you, Connor, is my God, the man was willing to travel. Yeah. Back in a time when, I mean, a a lot of Scots don't travel now, (laughs) you know, they, there's a lot of men and women that kind of stay in their village area and he is out, you know, in the late 1800s traveling all over the place. Everywhere. And, you know, Dornock didn't get train service until long after Tom had gone up there to renovate it. So that must have been an epic journey. Ashton, I was trying to figure out, okay, if the Oban ferry today takes six and a half hours, how long would it have taken Tom in a steamship? And it turns out that it would be like 20 to 26 hours by steamship, depending on tides and weather and everything else like that. And so he was just the F what one of the things that the trail impressed me was, was the enormity of his effort to spread golf through Scotland, uh, the amount of travel he was willing to do. And also, you know, I'm aware from reading the work of Roger McStravick and others that his fee never changed all his life. His fee was the same pound a day plus expenses. So no matter how famous he became now, pound was decent money in those days, keeping in mind that he only made 50 of those in a year from the Royal and ancient golf club. So a pound a day was decent money. Uh, but it's not extravagant expense. So if he was there at your golf course three or four days, you had the three pounds plus whatever, uh, whatever it cost him to travel there and back. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of those expenses might have been pretty substantial, actually, when you consider travel in those days was not that easy. And there have been, you know, multiple laps to most journeys that he took uh, because a lot of the places were like Dornick, Ashkenaz, Makrahanish, you know, not easy trains to that that location or anything. Yeah, and he he kind of gets a bad rap sometimes by people who talk about his golf design, almost like, um, you know, almost in that same ilk of Bendelo of you know, eighteen stakes in an afternoon. Yeah. What what's your take on that? I mean, because clearly you saw some amazing golf in those eighteen say courses. Completely misguided, completely misguided, and I think. Um, you know, Tom Simpson is one of the people who has contributed mightily to this. He wrote a, a number of essays about golf architecture. Uh, the one that comes to mind particularly is in Lonsdale Library's book, Golf, in which he has three different essays there, lengthy essays about architecture. And in those, he basically accuses the people that preceded the golden age of golf architecture, like Willie Park, like old Tom Morris, of being in what he considered the dark age of completely failing to understand the strategy of the courses they'd grown up on, completely failing to create anything of interest, so forth and so on. So what's interesting to me, though, is that, you know, I think one of the holes that Tom Simpson kept at Cruden Bay that he liked the most was uh, one of the old Tom originals, the sixth, the par five along the Bloody Burr. So I, I don't I think Tom has some things to answer for in that regard, in my mind, at least. Now, I don't pass myself off as an in, as an expert in golf architecture by any means. 
but I know a lot about, I've read a lot of books about golf. In fact, I'm informed, but not expert. And uh, I certainly have never designed any golf holes or anything of that nature. So I can only say so much. But I found Tom's holes to be massively interesting and inventive. And all the more so, and the pathways along which you play to be pretty, pretty fabulous. And then to step back and realize that all of that is done with your only tool being a spade and a wheelbarrow, you know? Uh, and so he must've been, and he was an intensely thoughtful and creative man. And I became convinced at Ashkenaz in particularly that, but everywhere really, that what he did was he just, when he was walking the property, he was looking for greens. You know, he was looking for natural greens that had the right shapes and undulations and were in the right kinds of spots. You know, he also loved the punch bowl green, for instance, because of all the fun of it being carried to where the hole might be. Uh, and he would make those on the regular. So he's looking for the right place to have a green. And then when he has that, he's reading the land to see where is a tee that creates drama, number one, in the playing to this hole, uh, create something sporting, you know, something that's fun. And so I feel like, you know, his process became clearer to me partly by the physical act of just walking them all, you know, walking and seeing over and over, oh, look how this green plays back out to that natural promontory over there which you, from which you now see the Firth of Forth uh, or you see the Dornick Firth or wherever you happen to be. And you come to realize, you know, this isn't accidental. You know, this isn't somebody who just walked around, you know, and he would often visit courses over time, too, that he had, you know, partly by virtue of the fact that he played competitions at a lot of them. But also he would come back later and, you know, decide not right away on where bunkers might be. You know, he also was he just had it, you know, like at Dornick, you know, he goes to Dornick and he realizes, look at all these plateaus. We'll just make a lot of them greens and they'll be so much fun. And they are. And that's been a lasting thing, you know, D D Donald Ross growing up there, watching Tom lay out the golf course. Uh, you know, he took a lot of lessons from that that have obviously spread all the way across the United States and have helped create monumental courses like Pinehurst Number 2. So I think Tom's contribution is grossly underestimated. Oh, agree. I mean, all the impact between Tillinghast and all the great James Braid and, and like you said, Donald Ross, all these people and, and architects uh, – that encount had encounters with him and can learn from him and play his golf courses and sometimes change his golf courses as, you know, uh, ev you know, the golf equipment evolved. It's really staggering his place in golf course architecture. And I guess my question is to that. I can't imagine you, you walk away from this 18 hole experience or 18 golf course experience without some sense of awe of the man. Oh, just completely in all. Morse, I mean, I've spent a ton of my life studying the Morris family. But even in spite of all that, Connor, this was such a revelation. Because it's one thing to study in the abstract. And it's another thing to live it for 30 days. And for 30 days to be immersed in the same thing day after day. And, of course, be very single-minded in your focus on it, too. Because I went, my hashtag that I chose for it was Finding Tom. And there was a reason that I chose that is that that's what I felt like I was trying to do. I was really trying to find old Tom, the creator of Gorse courses, and sort of understand how is it that he actually worked? What was he doing when he went and wandered around on the links 
and proclaimed that there cannot be better for golf like he did about 85% of the places he went. But, and to see, you know, what was really fascinating too is there's so, the variety of landscapes. As I was telling you, you know, there's the wow landscapes like Makrahanish, Cruden Bay, and Ashkenish, where the dunes are just staggeringly large. And, you know, the extent of them is massive. And so there's that whole thing of wandering through these dunes to find holes. But also the same is that, like, much smaller, much flatter places like Dunbar. Dunbar's got to be the skinniest strip of lynx land in the world. I mean, you know, from the wall to the sea uh, in certain places on the golf course, particularly like the 16th hole, a par three there, you know, one side is the wall, the other side is the sea, and there's 30 paces in between them, but it's a, it's a great golf hole. And, you know, so he manages to craft holes in that landscape that are absolutely fabulous. Dunbar is one of the most exciting fun links you could play and it hardly takes up any land at all but the land it does have is brilliantly well used to create a whole variety of pretty fascinating golf holes some uh and you know that keeps striking you over and over that it wasn't it didn't matter what the land consisted of uh, in the main uh what it had he would bring the most out of and the consistency of his ability to do that with, at the very minimum, good, sound, fun golf, maybe not genius holes every other hole like you would experience at a place like Dornick or Carnoustie or something of that nature, but at a Tain or a Montrose, another place, just good, sound golf the whole way around with one or two holes that blow your mind. That's fantastic. I just, staggering to me. Just staggering. So, one other thing, Connor. Is yeah, please. The man was a genius of the par three, I decided. Oh, really? You know, you, you go along, you realize what common, you know, I'm constantly thinking, what commonalities do these golf courses have? And the one thing I realize is, oh, my God, the par threes. You know, every hole has absolutely genius level par threes. Uh, every course has at least one. Muirfield, all four of them are genius par fours, par threes. Now, some of that is Harry Colt and Tom Simpson who followed him. But, you know, during the course of the trail, you realize there are so many brilliant par threes and you have to feel like the original selection of those green sites has a lot to do with how brilliant they are. And uh, uh, the 11th at Ashkenish is, is a, just an incredible par three. The 16th at Tain is a wonderful little par three. It looks completely benign. You know, there's a little burn, but it's the burn's 30, 40 yards in front of you. And you don't think anything of it until your ball's in the air. And it's like drifting a little farther right. And you think, oh, gosh. Look how that burn winds around. Like, oh, my God, it's right next to the green when you're uh, at the green. It's camouflage. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Almost got you. So, you know, it's just all those little things come to you. And I was particularly struck by the par threes. And, I, you know, now that short courses are so hot, uh, one of my things I'm going to do for that magazine is create the world's greatest short course, which consists of one par three from each of the 18. Oh, I love it. Golf courses. So, I yeah. love it. So maybe speak a little bit to your experiences on certain courses. You can pick. I think we have to start with Askernish because I'm going to be doing a podcast on it here too. The 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 found old Tom Morris. So you're playing, you know, a rediscovered old Tom Morris in recent times. What what was that experience like? That was the most unique golf experience I've ever had, and I'm sure it will be the most unique golf experience I ever do have. Uh, first off, Ashrinus does not have an irrigation system. Uh, they mow infrequently. Uh, they, uh, the, the green is, um, the greens are precisely they would, would have been in the 1890s 
when when old Tom laid them out in 1891. Fascinating, right? Right. I mean, you're playing, so it is you know. an actual playing in a time capsule. Yeah, I love you that. Know? Um, and as I said, I think I've never played on a wilder or a more natural set of green sites than there are at Ashkerness. Now, you know, my experience is limited to, I've played a lot of golf in the United States, including many of the finer courses in the United States. Uh, and I've played, say, 25 or so courses in Scotland. I haven't played in Ireland or Australia or lots of other places in the world. So I have what Darwin would refer to as scandalous gaps of ignorance. But uh, in Scotland, I can say uh, no place I've played has had a wilder or more interesting or more fun to putt set of greens than Ashkenaz. You know, I don't even know what the green speed would be at Ashkenaz, but it can't be much above six. Uh, the greens are, you know, they are rugged. Uh, as they would have been in those days, but reminds you of my God, what an art putting was then. You had to really have some game to get the ball in the hole then. But the whole thing is, um, as I say, it was it was a lesson in the genius of routing. The way the course when you when you first start at Ashkenish, you're on a flat area out by the clubhouse, and you kind of wind up into the dunes. And when you reach the sixth hole, you get your first sight of the Atlantic Ocean, and from there to the time you wind back down after the 17th to flatter land that forms the par 5 18th and takes you back to the clubhouse, you are in gargantuan dunes and you're, you're hitting up to them, down below them. Uh, you're, you're trying to figure out a way around them if you don't think you have the shot that gets over them. And it's just one rollicking adventure from beginning to end. There are, there are only two bunkers at Greenside, the entire golf course, one on the 8th, and one on the 12th. The greens do not require protection by bunkers. Uh, they, uh, they have plenty of protection all around them in the place that they run off to. Uh, and, you know, so it was just, it was like going back in time. I played the course with Hickory Clubs because I wanted to experience it in the right spirit. I knew that my score would be catastrophically poor once I stood on the first tee and realized what was out in front of me. I'm like, oh, Jeez, this looks hard. <laughs> <clears throat> I love then, it. Uh, then, uh, you know, of course, Ashkenish is uh, on a very small island in the middle of the ocean. Uh, if you, you know, you literally, if you sailed directly west from Ashkenish, you would land in Canada. There's nothing in between you. And wow. Yeah. Just exposed. So the wind uh, is, can be really, really substantive. It was a 40 mile an hour wind or so the day that, that I played Ashkenish. Uh, and you know, number one, walking up those hills in that wind, uh, walking around that dunescape, and it's just an unbelievable golfing adventure. And you know, obviously, you got to come in the right spirit. You got to come to an Ashness realizing the conditions that you're playing and reveling in that. Absolutely, like, embrace you know, not, them, right? You can't come with the idea that you're going to be. It's going to be conditioned like Dornick or like Muirfield or someplace like that where it's immaculate. Uh, it's not like that. But that's the great joy of it. I think I got 51 with the Hickories on the opening nine. And uh, and then it was just uh, that was when the wind and the walking and just the brutal test of it uh, started to wear on the game. And uh, I don't know that we kept a score for the back per se. I mean, it's not about score at that point. It's about the experience, right? It's oh, about okay. the adventure. I mean, I, I imagine the whole trip is too, right? 
Yeah, no, honestly, a lot of the trip was me trying to think about, I had, I did a video dispatch from every location. So, you know, I'm trying to make sure I remember holes. I'm taking notes the whole time. I'm taking photographs the whole time. So that's not conducive to scoring, you know, your mind, you know, I'm a poor player. So for me to score, I need to be a hundred percent grinding and, you know, full focus. So I uh, just can't go casually put up a decent score anywhere, but, uh, it was, um, it was great fun. Oh my God. The whole, the whole thing was fun. So Ashness was one of the greatest of the experiences though, by far. Now give me some experiences maybe off the course, you know, mm-hmm. ones where, you know, Askernish is amazing. Press week we've heard, uh, Makrahanish, the opening hole. Give me some of the experiences that come with this journey that, you know, took you off the beaten path. Perhaps you're not talking about, you know, walking the links. You're actually, you know, in and about town. Well, I'd say the greatest of those, was we had a couple nights in Edinburgh. You know, I wanted a physical break of days in between. So I did the front nine as we constructed it. And then I had a few days off, partly because my book came out and I had book readings and things I wanted to do. But we were in Edinburgh and we stayed uh, in a little town called Morningside. And there is a a pub there called the Canny Man's Pub, which is probably the coolest pub I've ever been in. Uh, The bar, the, the guy who's the manager of the bar or at least appeared to be a guy named James McGee, aspiring pro golfer, great guy. Just had a couple great nights at the Candyman's. That was really fun. Uh, you know, I love poetry and I love writing. So I also got to go to Robert Burns's birthplace, uh, which is very near Presswick, and uh, spent an afternoon at the Robert Burns Museum. And I saw the bed he was born in. Uh, his cottage is there to be walked through and viewed, and you can you literally see the bed in which Robert Burns was born. Uh, they had a book of his poems and songs, all of them collected for seven pounds, for goodness sake. So was able to get that Been enjoying reading some Robert Burns poetry to sort of bring me back uh, while I've been home. So that was I saw the Balmoral Estate up uh, where, you know, playground of the Royals uh, when I was up near Dornick. And, uh, you know, a lot of off the beaten path experiences. One of them was to see Jack White shop in Gullen. Uh, I really I wanted to buy a spoon there because I felt like I needed a spoon with a little more loft on it than the one that I do have um, to add to my set. So I went and bought a, a lofted spoon from Boris Lietzow, uh who uh, actually prefers to go by Jack White now. But uh, yeah, so he uh, I, I like to refer to him as the, the golfer formerly known as Boris Lietzow. Uh <clears throat> But anyway. Uh, we, I had a great time in his shop. Gordon Shalladay was there. He's a popular Twitter figure who loves Hickory Golf. He took me out and walked the Musselboro Links with me where he's a member. So that was a super fun thing to stand in the Pandy Bunker, what used to be the Pandy Bunker, and see all that. And, um, you know, I had lunch with Boris and with Gordon and with David Jones, the UK golf guy, at the old clubhouse there in Gullen. So that was just those kinds of experiences were super fun. Led to one of my other really great days on the whole trail, which was Boris asked me, of course, where are you going to play with these clubs? And I said, well, I'm going to use these clubs at the Gents Open at Cullen. So I had been entered on my birthday, June 25th, uh, in the Gents Open at Cullen, you know, uh, with no prospects. Yeah, you're going to win it. I get it. The Golden Club. Right. So Boris then declares that he's coming to play me, play with me. So he came up to Cullen uh, and, you know, w- and he played w- with me and my friend Lee. Uh, it was a, I had an extra spot in my threesome, so he joined us. 
and he's the master of the Hickory Club. It was amazing. He's such a character. So it was just like one of those off-the-field experiences that becomes part of the actual golf experience. And Cullen is, you know, I would say Cullen was right up there among my favorite places I have ever played. I used to think North Bear was the most fun course in the world. Now I think it's kind of neck and neck. Cullen is stupid fun to play. You know, those C-stacks at Cullen just make for such fun golf all over and around them. The views at Cullen are absolutely spectacular. Uh, elevation changes are, are just wild. Uh, you know, you hit from one tee, uh, I guess you're probably 75 yards above the green. And the green's all the way out by the ocean. And uh, you can hear the wa- waves crash. You can see the waves crashing ashore over your shoulder when you're putting. It's uh, So just pretty spectacular landscape and just a wonderful little club. It was my, they, they made a birthday cake for me. which Oh, my gosh. How nice. <laughs> yeah, it had a picture of old Tom on it. It said old Tom Morris Trail. It was really fabulous. And um, so it just... They made it a special day, and that was that was one of the great days on the trail as well. And you got to hang out with Roger McStravick, our friend and, and historian in St. Andrews, correct? Oh, yes, that was great. I played the old course like one of the last days before it closed, which that in of itself was a great Absolutely. Uh, it was my 12th round in 13 days, so I was uh, not in what I would call picture-perfect golf shape, and I played quite poorly, uh, except birdieing 11, which will be the greatest moment of my golfing life from then till doomsday uh i don't see how i could make a better birdie ever uh so i I had a great caddy named ian who was a ton of fun and you know he suffered with me i think i got nine bunkers so i was just hitting sideways back i mean to be a historian you really have to know the history of the bunkers and the only way to know the history is to experience them well, I'm, an, I'm a very expert <laughs> at this stage. I mean, game. if you want to walk in the footsteps of old Tom, I'm sure he's been in all of those at one point or another. Oh, my gosh, yes. So the next day, Roger and I are filming a little video that will eventually be broadcast uh, as part of this old Tom Morris thing. And who should, who should walk up to the first tee but my caddy, Ian? And uh, I say, hi, Ian, how are you doing? And he says, what are you doing? I said, oh, you know, I'm making a little film. I'm kind of a star at stage and screen. And he immediately replies, well, you got to be good at something. Oh, uh, brilliant. St. Andrew's humor. I love that. All right. Let me ask you this. I've only got three more questions for you. And maybe this is a silly question, but did this journey change you in any way? It's such a unique journey you took. I mean... Yes, I would say in the sense of gave me a greater appreciation than I have ever had of the depth and breadth of golf in Scotland, in particular at the out of the way places that the trophy hunters don't go look to play uh, like Montrose or Tain or Cullen or, you know, any of these uh, more Murray old, just a wonderfully great little golf course that doesn't get anywhere near the attention it should. So appreciation for the breadth and depth of Scottish golf appreciation really in a way that I've never had it for how it was that old Tom found these holes in the natural landscape and what a gift he had for doing that and how we as, uh, people who enjoy golf architecture, probably need to think a little differently uh, than we typically have done about the work that he did. Uh, You know, a lot of it has obviously been changed over time by the necessity. But even in most of those places, the pathways that he found still still are used 
uh, at least at some level, and a lot of his natural green sites remain. So some of the things that were part and parcel of his genius are still very much alive in these golf courses as much as many of them have changed. So I, I, that, that, was, that was how I felt it changed. And I also, it, you know, got me closer to that ultimate goal of my life, which is to be a Scottish golfer. You know, I'm not Scottish uh, except a teeny little part. Uh, so I can't ever really achieve that goal per se, but I can be, uh, I can be as close to it as I, as I can. So I always try. So from your experience, what can we Americans take from the Scottish experience of golf? What do they get right or better said, what could we adopt? That's a brilliant question. And I love it that you asked it. So many things. One of them is hardly any clubs in Scotland are private in the sense that clubs in America are private. I feel like private clubs in America could do themselves a favor and could do the game a favor by doing what the Scots do, which is setting aside some tee times for public play. Certain days of the week are available for public play, even at the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers at Muirfield, which used to be much more difficult to get in. But nowadays, you know, there's two, I forget what days they have, but they have two days a week that are public play days. And almost any golf course in Scotland, however exclusive it might be, can be approached, can be played by the average player. That's one really big thing. The other thing to me is that golf in Scotland is enjoyed by a lot of people who aren't golfers. You do not, you know, no, you don't need anyone's permission to go walking about on a public links. People will be, when you are playing Dornick, people will be walking their dogs down the sides of fairways. You know, they know to stay out of your way. They know in the main to be quiet when people are starting to hit or whatever. It's all, they know that in the same way that the residents of Ashenish know to get in the passing place when they see his car coming. You know, it's just part and parcel of life. You know, people, all walks of life enjoy, if you go to the, one of the great joys of being in St. Andrews to see the old course on a Sunday with people out there having a picnic, throwing a Frisbee in this, in the, uh, in, in the Valley of sin, you know, it's just, it's amazing how golf is a birthright there. You know, I don't think that can necessarily be created, but we can do a lot more to bring the public into the enjoyment of the spaces that we have, which the Scots do so much better at. You know, when you're playing golf in Scotland, you're pretty much everywhere allowed to have your dog with you under certain rules. And many, many, many people play with their dogs. And I find that, you know, I am not a person who owns a dog, uh, but I still find it intensely charming and fabulous. So those are things I think they get right that we could learn. Golf is in, is pretty inexpensive in Scotland outside of the big championship courses, you know, uh, and, and I think, you know, we, you know, we're very pricey for our golf in the main. So those are the things I take away. It's just golf needs to be for everyone in a, you know, at least the space of golf needs to be available to more people. If we're going to, it takes up a lot of water and it takes up a lot of area. So it's in the best interest of the game to invite the community into it more. So what do you do with this amazing gift? You've, you've had this experience of a lifetime and I know you too well. What are you going to do with it? Is there, is there a book in this well, journey I'm, obviously articles but where, where do you see I'm this going is, what i'm going to do is i'm spending the rest of this year on it uh before i start on another book you know i told you i want to start on the book about joyce and glenna but uh what i want to do is devote at least the rest of this year to to uh, creating a a magazine uh 
magazine format partly because it's it's reproducible at a good price that can be you know used by Bonnie Wee Golf uh, to uh, attract clients uh, and or even be sold to people who have an interest in the courses along the old Tom Morris Trail. Uh, and so that's what I'm doing. I'm writing uh, sort of in the spirit of golf courses of the British Isles. I'm writing uh, an essay about each of the 18 courses. Uh, I'm going to have, as I told you, this, I'm going to create the short course. I'll create an eclectic 18 probably as well, uh, made up of one hole from each of the 18 golf courses. That just would be a rollickingly fun golf course to play. Uh, I'll write, uh, in addition to those things, the main thing will be a think piece type essay about old Tom, creator of golf holes, that sort of goes at some of the ideas that are percolating in my brain right now, which you and I discussed today and are not fully formed, but it'll be out along those lines of coming to a new understanding and maybe a new appreciation of Tom's contributions to golf design uh, on multiple levels. And, you know, one of which is influence on, on those who came after him in addition to his own creations. So, that's the plan. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, if I were to add one thing, I'd say it might be really cool to add to that magazine famous shots or famous moments that took place on certain holes throughout that journey. That would be really cool, know, too. That's a great suggestion. I, I am planning to put with uh, each course a couple little history, history nuggets that have nothing to do with the essay about the course, partly for design reasons, partly for that kind of a fun thing. Um, you know, like obviously at Presswick, the three might want to be gone into. Um, there's a famous story about how Dornick got discovered where a couple men from Dornick come down and play in the 1909 amateur championship. They travel South to play and they play in England and they knock off John Ball and Harold Hilton both. And, uh, and then everybody decides they should go and play Dornick and see what the heck's going on up there at Dornick because it must be a pretty good golf course if it can produce a golfer that can beat these two men. So, you know, there'll be little nuggets like that that get included. You know, Ashkenis is obviously the home of Flora McDonald who helped Bonnie Prince Charlie escape over the sea to sky, as it were. So, uh, you know, it'd be little things like that about history, about culture. Uh, probably thinking, too, of creating a old Tom Morris whiskey trail, just because everywhere you go, you, you know, one of the other things about it is that you basically see every whiskey region of Scotland while you're going. Because you travel the whole length and breadth of the nation. So and quite frankly, your legs are hurting for playing 18 holes in 25 yeah, days. You need a little uh, lubricant. After a walk like that, that's for sure. And we, uh, I had some great experiences. Springbank whiskey made a bottle of Stephen Proctor whiskey. That was, that was fun. Yes, Springbank whiskey. Tell me you got the bottle. Do you have the bottle? Oh, yes, I have the bottle. Oh, that's pretty right cool. Stephen Proctor whiskey. It was awesome. Uh, it was a dusky kind of a whiskey, but it was great. So, <laughs> That's great. Uh, it was it just had a, a wonderful time all the way around. Murray Old uh, has often brewed its own whiskeys, uh, and they brewed a special Old Tom Morris 200th birthday whiskey at Murray, uh, and I was gifted a bottle of that, too. Oh, wow. That's uh, amazing. That's just crazy. Bring all that back with me, but we tried to make a dent in what we had uh, during our remaining days in Scotland, so... Uh, William Mackleman, a guy that goes by the name Joe, is the captain there, and he played with me. He was great fun to play with and a good man and gifted me that, as well as I got gifted history books of almost every club I played. So all that, you know, helping me with the with what I'm doing now. And uh, so I just get up every day and I write about another old Tom Morris golf course. Like, the, you know, it's sort of the courses of the old Tom Morris trail, you know, that kind of a thing. So 
it's fun to do. And, uh, you know, so I'm just awash with thoughts about old Tom now and about these golf courses and about golf in Scotland. Okay, I lied. I have one more question. How can people play the old Tom Morris Trail? What's the well, best way to find it, it? The best way to find it is to go to oldtrommorristrail.com where you'll find a lot of information about the individual courses. Obviously, Bonnie Wee Golf is the touring company that sponsored me and obviously would love to work with you. I do think that Bonnie Wee thinks of this as way bigger than them, that the old Tom Morris Trail is something for all of Scotland. And what they most want you to do is to come and select some of the courses on this trail to play and build your itinerary around playing some of the trail. So it's not necessarily, it's not all, all or none, right? Oh, heck no. Yeah. You know, the, you know, I not everyone's crazy like Stephen Proctor. Well, you know, not everyone's blessed like Stephen Proctor. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. So, I mean, like you could start, for instance, you could do Ashkenish, Dornick, and the Highlands and end at Cruden Bay. You could do Fife and Dundee, and, you know, you'd have St. Andrew's New, St. Andrew's Old, Crail, Montrose, Carnoustie. You know, you could do East Lothian. Just camp out in Gullen, and you know you could play North Berwick, Muirfield, Dunbar, Luffness New, and there's a zillion other golf courses around there. So you don't have to restrict your itinerary to the old Tom Morse Trail, but it can be a thing that brings you. Every course you get, by the way, I never mentioned, when you complete the course, they give you a coin that has a portrait of old Tom on the front, a very lovely coin, and the, the crest of the golf club on the back. So, uh, in January, when I'm going to go to the PGA Tour show with Bonnie Wee Golf this this year, uh, hopefully with the magazine in tow, if I can get it done in time, and uh, and then uh, you know I'll get my all my 18 coins, which uh, are dis- displayed in a whiskey cask head. Unreal! That is so it makes cool. For a great little thing in your room or whatever. So, uh, yeah, no. So you can use your own tour operator, create your own itinerary. You know, it's obviously easy to do. Uh, or you can seek out Bonnie Wee Golf. I'll say this, though. You know, I'm a person who comes from a humble background, and I've never been a person who had tons and tons of money. So I haven't had the kind of luxury experiences that are provided by Bonnie Wee Golf in my own personal lifetime. Uh, and I was just blown away by the care and consideration that I received from them uh, and the way that every single thing is taken care of. All I ever did was get in a car go someplace to have dinner, go someplace to play golf, enjoy my pints, be picked up in a car, be taken back to my room, you know, whatever. Every every reservation is made, everything that you'd possibly want to do, including things like going to the castle, going to visit distilleries, going to see the Robert Burns Museum, all that. They, they arrange on my behalf and they do it for all their clients. And they're, they're just amazing at what they do. And they're also just super nice, fun people to be around. My wife was worried because, you know, the first 10 days I was going to be spending with David Harris, who I've only ever, you know, met in casual settings. I've never actually stayed in a house with him or had a long visit with him or anything. So then you're going to be living for 10 days, essentially, with the person that you're, it's, you know, you know, but you don't know. No. Absolutely. But I'll say this. that was Those are maybe the most fun days of my golfing life. David is just a joy to be around. We had a blast the entire time. He made me try Haggis multiple times. It was good. Uh, so yeah, no, David was just, it was a treat and the whole thing was a treat. So I couldn't recommend Bonnie Wee golf more highly, but most importantly, I recommend that you go play some of these courses on the trail and don't skip the little places. That's where a lot of the joy is. Don't go trophy hunting. 
go out to play Scottish golf and enjoy the little places and the joy that it brings to the average Scotsman uh, when they play on those links. Well said. Well, unfortunately, we lost probably half of the audience when I insulted uh, both Scottish and Irish people with that terrible accent of mine. So for those of you who kept listening, thank you. <laughs> and I apologize once again for that hack job of uh, of an imitation to try to get uh, a Scottish accent. So Stephen, my admiration is as strong as my jealousy for you on this trip. Thank you so much for sharing this journey with all of us. It was great fun to talk to you about it, Connor, and hopefully the people that listen will enjoy hearing about the adventures along the old Tom Morris Trail, and we'll maybe set out on some or all of the trail themselves one of these days. It's worth doing. Absolutely. Thanks again. All right, Connor. Take care. I hope you enjoyed our conversation about Stephen Proctor's journey and his revelation of old Tom Morris's design work. If you want to learn more about the old Tom Morris Trail, take a moment to check out their website at www.oldtommorristrail.com. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. <laughs>